And so tonight we're going to consider what is the civic responsibility of a Christian. And so if you would, just agree with me in prayer once more as we jump into this. Father, we, we pause again, Lord, and thank you for our time together and worship this far. And, and Lord, as we delve into what ultimately, Lord, whether it should be or not, we've made kind of a sensitive topic. Lord, I pray that you'd give us wisdom for it here tonight. You'd give us grace. You'd give us humble hearts, Lord, to receive what you have for us. And perhaps more than anything tonight, Lord, that you would foster a sense of unity in our midst reminding us, Lord, of, of who we are, the bride of Christ, the church, and that, Lord, we are to demonstrate unity in all things. We are to demonstrate unity around you, Lord Jesus, and that should be, that should be the most important thing. And so as we consider a topic here tonight, Lord, that often divides us and sadly divides the church still today, uh, may we handle it with, with grace and May you impart mercy to us, Lord, as as we consider these things. And that we would leave here, Lord, encouraged, edified, challenged, and uh, more in love with you and and closer to one another, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And so, civic responsibility of Christians, let's consider what this even means for a moment. What is the definition of civic or civics? Many of you took your civics class in high school or in college, right? Civic, the word singularly there, means relating to the duties or activities of people in relation to their town, city, or local area. Okay, the duties or activities of people in their, in their area, their city. Civics uh, refers to the study of the rights and duties of citizenship. Civic responsibility then, plainly stated, is the responsibility of a citizen. And so we ask the question, what is the responsibility of a Christian in terms of their citizenship in this country today? I saw another definition. Uh, maybe they gave it a little bit more artistic license, but they said civic responsibility means active participation in the public life of a community in an informed, committed, and constructive manner with a focus on the common good. So based on this, does a Christian have a responsibility to participate in public life constructively for the good of all? Yes. I believe we can absolutely say yes. As Christians, though, remember, our primary objective is to carry out the Great Commission. That's chief. That needs to be at the top of all. That's the main priority, to share the gospel. Matthew 28, verses 16 through 20, uh, which you can really summarize and say, go into all the world, preach the gospel to every creature baptizing people in the name of the Son and the Father and the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, the Holy Spirit comes upon them and they are given power to share the gospel and go into Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the earth. We see over and over again where people are empowered to take the truth of the gospel out to the world. Now, the Great Commission, and even there when the Holy Spirit comes upon the believers at that time, yes, contextually the Great Commission was given first to the disciples, but they were told what? To go and to teach everyone else what they themselves were commanded to do. The believers that then were scattered shortly after the Holy Spirit came upon them there and the establishing of the early church there in Acts, all those believers went. They began to be dispersed throughout all the land. And what did they do? They preached the gospel. 
They shared the truth of the gospel. And throughout Paul's letters, he continually exhorts the body there to share their faith. He gives instruction for leadership and for the teaching of the gospel. This is our number one priority. However, we also see throughout history, men and women of God engage in civic responsibilities as well as sharing the gospel. Even go back into Old Testament history, we see individuals like Joseph and Moses and Daniel and Nehemiah who give themselves to the civic responsibilities of the day to care for the people, to engage in their communities. Even in the New Testament, Paul, and some might say, well, did Paul really do that? Yes, Paul leveraged what? his Roman citizenship on numerous occasions for the benefit of the gospel. Even Jesus gave himself to civic responsibilities. Was it not a civic responsibility when Jesus himself paid taxes and said, render to Caesar that which is Caesar's? So our country, our own country, has in large part prospered both domestically here in our own communities and even abroad because of the influence of Christians who have engaged in the affairs of the community. Godly men and women throughout the ages who have stood for truth, who have advocated, who have stood for the oppressed and, and gotten involved in many different things and many different leadership positions. Matthew and Matthew chapter 5 verses 13 through 16, if you want to just write that one down. We've been there recently in the Sermon on the Mount and this is where Jesus himself says we are to be salt and light. Salt acting as a preservative in the world, knowing that we live in a world that is decaying. Salt doesn't prevent it from decaying, but it does slow it down. It preserves it for a period of time. We are that preservative. By the power of the Holy Spirit, we are a preservative in this world. We are also light as we share and shine the light of the gospel into the darkness. And so we could spend the course of the evening just considering the various ways in which we are called to engage in the public square. Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah in chapter 29, verse 7, Jeremiah 29, 7 says, Seek the peace and the prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. They're in exile. But Jeremiah says, Seek the peace and prosperity of the city in which you are in exile. Care for your community. But here's our bigger question for tonight. Not just do we have a civic responsibility to engage for the common good within our community, but does a Christian have a responsibility to vote? This is an interesting question because many in the church have not voted historically. Over the last several elections, a big talking point was about how do we get the Christian vote out? How do we get the church to vote and there are certainly some, especially this year, who have expressed concern over voting simply based on some of their own conflicts with the options available to them. Now, I think we can agree that voting would be considered a civic responsibility. Independent of maybe some of our own feelings about personally voting, that voting would be listed, if you will, under a number of different civic responsibilities. But here's the thing. Scripture does not give us a command to vote. You can't go anywhere in Scripture and see where it says explicitly you should vote in every election. It would only be inferred based off of passages like Matthew 5, for example, where, well, if we were to be salt and light, then one could assume that it would make sense for us to vote and to vote our values and those types of things in order to be that salt and light or to support a candidate who's functioning in that capacity. 
Moreover, in the Bible, and this is perhaps one of the reasons why we don't see this explicitly stated in Scripture, is that people didn't get to vote, right? They lived under monarchies, dictatorships. The idea of voting was a foreign concept. And couldn't it be said for Christians that today even we live in somewhat of a theocracy, albeit not recognized by everyone, but the fact that all things are God's, and ultimately He raises up rulers, He takes them down, and we are to obey those rulers so long as it does not conflict with our faith and with Scripture. So do we even need to vote based on God's sovereignty? These are questions that people are asking. But what we must consider is that ultimately it was God in His wisdom who created government who established law and order. And he establishes this all the way back in Genesis as he begins to lay out man's dominion and how we are to exercise authority over all things. We serve a God of order. And from the very beginning, God has said, I have created you that you may have authority over all the earth, over every creeping thing. And this idea carries into the New Testament in passages that we're very familiar with as we consider the role of government. Say, for example, in Romans, in Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 7, it says, Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God. And those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For he is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is God's minister and avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. Therefore, you must be subject not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. For because of this you also pay taxes, for they are God's ministers, attending continually to this very thing. Render, therefore, to all their due, taxes to whom taxes are due, customs to whom customs, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Paul makes it fairly clear there that we are to respect those who are in authority. And we see elsewhere the Apostle Peter state in his first letter, 1 Peter chapter 2, Again, if you're taking notes, just write this down. 1 Peter 2, verses 13 through 17. Peter says, Therefore, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king as supreme or to governors as to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men as free, yet not using liberty as a cloak for vice, but as bondservants of God. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. You see, Scripture does not teach us to, in all cases, directly defy government or uh, be disobedient to a leader. It's quite the opposite. It suggests that in most cases we honor the king and be obedient and live good before because God has designed government for our benefit, for our good, and he uses those who are in authority for his purposes. But here's the thing. There is something that is different for us than for those who have gone before us, those during this time who were called to honor the king. Because again, by implication there, they were living in a monarchy. They were living under the rule of a king. By God's grace, 
Remember, now we're thinking in terms of uh, our civic responsibility and do we have a responsibility to vote? Are we required to vote? By God's grace, by his unmerited favor towards us, we live not under a monarchy, but in a democratic republic. And so we, to some degree, are complicit in governance. We are part of governing. Throughout Scripture, we see that leaders are held accountable by God for the way that they govern. So while people are called to be obedient and to live their lives rightly and to obey the law, God holds leaders accountable to how they govern the people. And we see leaders punished, we see leaders taken down because of their sinful ways. And in our situation, though, yes, you may not be elected president next week, by virtue of the system which you are a part of, you play a role in governing. The great social experiment that is America that has been uniquely blessed by God has afforded us the privilege of forming a country that functions by the consent of the governed. Sometimes it doesn't always feel that way, but that's how it was designed and established. And in Jeremiah, in chapter 22, verse 3, God says through the prophet, do justice and righteousness. And in Micah, in chapter 6, verse 8, he says, he has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. These are commandments, not for just for all believers, but specifically within these contexts as well. These are for leaders. These are the things that were to be, to be carried out. David Platt, many of you know of David Platt. His probably most famous book is Radical, and he, he's the founder of Radical Ministries. He writes in his book, Before You Vote, which is a, a great book, a quick read, a small book. He writes this, that as governing citizens, so he refers to us as governing citizens because of the democracy that we're a part of, We are accountable before God for the good of the people affected by our government. So consider what is is known as the greatest commandment, right? In Matthew, in 22, 37 through 39, Jesus says what? Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. You see, we have a responsibility as governing citizens, as well as believers, to love our neighbors, to do justice and righteousness, which by implication means to engage in our political process, which forms our government, which is intended to benefit the people. Now, what I've said thus far is not likely much of a revolutionary concept at this point, this idea that we should be involved, that we have civic responsibility, and, and maybe you've considered some of these things for the first time, this, this idea of being a governing citizen, but it implies the fact that we have a responsibility to vote. And that, too, isn't probably lost on many of you. You've been told from a young age you should vote. It's a privilege. It's a, it's a blessing. You get to participate in this. But what happens when you're conflicted regarding your choices? and feeling that perhaps you may be complicit even with the actions of those that you vote for. Does a Christian then still need to vote? What then is your civic responsibility? When you're faced with a situation where maybe you feel like, I don't have a great choice, I don't have a great option. 
And might I tell you tonight, and we'll just go ahead and head this off at the pass in case any of you are thinking through this, it is not my intention tonight to tell you who to vote for. If you even catch wind of it throughout the course of the message, then I would submit to you that, that you need to reconsider what it is that you're making assumptions about. Because I've gone through this multiple times, and I promise you there's nothing in here where I say, this is who you should vote for. If anything, uh, if you make an assumption about even what my thoughts may be on the particular issue, I assure you, you'd be surprised to know what's been going through my own head and my own heart <laughs> over the last several months. Okay, So it, it, tonight isn't about, okay, I'm going to make a, a very sort of strategic way to convince the body that this is, this is the candidate that we need to vote for. Rather, how we need to approach this process. What is, again, your civic responsibility? Here's the thing. As we come to this place, we go, okay, I do have civic responsibilities. I do have a responsibility to engage in my community, my city, my town, my state, my, my country. I, I do have, it seems, a, a compelling reason in Scripture to vote, to say, yes, part of my responsibility is to cast a vote, but I'm, I'm, I'm conflicted. The question can be asked, can Christians steward their vote by not voting? Can you make the decision to say, I'm going to best steward my vote, use my responsibility here by abstaining from the process? You certainly could do that. It's a free country after all. You don't have to if you don't want to. But may I challenge you, rather than apathy or laziness, which is often the reason why someone does not vote, you could, in prayerful consideration of the issues, determine not to vote. What do I mean by that? We'll delve into that a little bit deeper here in a moment. But that means really do your homework. Go through every bit of information, every, every platform issue, every candidate and their background. And that may sound exhausting, but hey, voting is a big responsibility. And so I would challenge you before you make the decision to say, well, I'm just not going to, to really prayerfully consider the issues, take them to the Lord, use a biblical framework as a lens across those issues, and then decide what it is that you need to do. Okay? One could really argue that if you end up in that place, if you say, okay, I've determined then that I'm not going to, or perhaps that maybe you go through the process and if the ballot allows you, you write in a candidate for a particular category or you just leave one blank. And I'm not even sure, you know, there's different systems and different precincts. I'm not even sure how all of them work uh, at this point and what you're allowed to do as far as that's concerned. But some would argue, hey, by not voting for one of the two primary candidates, one of the two major parties, that it's really just kind of defeating the purpose. That ultimately Christians should seek to consider the issues at stake and apply, as I've said, a biblical framework to those issues and make decisions then based on the platform and the issues that are to be addressed. And to do so, by the way, and this is where we'll start to transition into the next piece, in a way where you best serve and honor God, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, right? So make decisions that ultimately, Lord, I believe this will most glorify you as well as, and the second commandment is like it, that will show love to my neighbor. And so voting and considering the issues in a way where I'm doing my best to be obedient to Scripture and to love my neighbor. Now to the earlier question, I do not believe in the case of elections, and this is to the earlier question of what, you know, I'm, I'm conflicted, especially about potentially being complicit with an individual. It is my opinion that a voter is not complicit 
in every aspect of a leader's behavior. Why? Well, here's the deal. And let's just take, for example, because I don't even know many at this point of the, the other minor party candidates. Just, just the two people right now that are running for president. They're both sinners. They both have character flaws. And both of them demonstrate aspects of good leadership as well as bad leadership. And we are called to try and choose between two flawed people who belong to two flawed parties And it's really an impossible task if you are expecting to identify a perfect person. That's where I say amen to the Jesus 2020 signs that are out there. That's your best candidate. So I don't know then that we need to withdraw because of the candidate's character flaws if we are prayerfully considering the issues from a biblical perspective, holding then leaders accountable to doing what they say they're going to do, right? But I'm also not suggesting that we need to defend their flaws, okay? I think a lot of people right now are trying to, well, I can try and explain this away because it's just sort of a means to an end for this. No, hey, call it for what it is. But if we're called to engage in this process to ultimately glorify God and and benefit our neighbor and love our neighbor, well, then deal with the issues at hand. Take them before Scripture. Take them before the Lord and prayerfully say, okay, Lord, I'm going to make this decision based off of this, this, and this and my desire to honor you and to be a part of this process. Now listen, again, I'm not suggesting that we defend their character flaws or dismiss those character flaws, or that there may not at times be a character flaw that just really causes you to go, okay, I can go no further here. But listen, look at our examples in history. Daniel, Nehemiah, Esther. We could go on and on and on. Individuals who arguably lived very moral and ethical lives who also offered support and service to leaders with massive character flaws. I mean, when you read Esther, you don't really get a sense of Xerxes and the type of man that he was. But do your history in the extra-biblical texts, and you'll find he was not a good guy. Nebuchadnezzar, praise the Lord, I'm of the opinion that he's saved, that once he goes out and he acts crazy for seven years and eats grass like a cow, and then comes back, that he's like, Whoa, that was trippy. And Daniel, I want to get saved. <laughs> right? Like, this God you've been telling me about, praise the Lord, right? I'm just of that opinion. I think we see him finish his life that way. But he was a pretty messed up dude. But did Daniel say, no, nah, I'm out? No, Daniel said, I'm going to do my job. I'm going to engage in this process. Why? Because I have a responsibility to glorify God and to benefit my neighbor. Now again, I'm sure we can argue as to whether or not each of those is a true parallel of what we're dealing with today, but each of them operated within their sphere of influence to accomplish things for God's glory and for the good of their neighbor. And lest you think, by the way, that as we're talking about you know, a character flaw that you can't get over here, and I'm saying, no, get over it, right? Lest you think that somehow, just to, again, reassure people here as well as watching online, that think maybe I'm somehow conveying support for Trump as the one who's sort of been you know, doing some things that are a little foolish at times. Listen, to those who are maybe saying, hey, I'm going to vote the the other way here, just out of purely a moral and or civility argument alone, you've convinced yourself that someone is somebody that they're not. And I'm not trying to disparage them, either one of them. But what we also need to understand is that politicians are masterful at making you think what they want you to think about them. And so we're called to have discernment. Now, we must, must, must 
prayerfully consider the issues. And we'll talk about that shortly. And then from there, we vote in faith. What do I mean by that? Romans chapter 14, verse 23 says, whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. What does that mean? It means that we have the ability here then to, as we cast our vote, to do so saying, Lord, I've researched, I've studied, I've prayed, I've searched your scriptures, and I believe that this is how you've led me and directed me to vote, and I want to be obedient to love and to honor you and to love and care for my neighbor. And from there, you trust him with it. You do it in faith. You steward your vote that way. We have the ability, the same way we steward our time and steward our resources and our talents and our finances and any other thing, you steward your vote that same way. But it's this consideration, it's that effort here that we need to focus on next. So at this point, I'll say that we've at least established that we do have a responsibility to steward our vote. So from there, what are the important issues then? And how do we evaluate them? How should Christians vote? What does matter the most? First, the question needs to be asked, and this is more just brass tacks, nuts and bolts type stuff. Are you really researching a political candidate? And are you aware of their party platform? If you are paying attention only to the media and social media and candidate buzzwords and rallies and slogans on a bumper sticker, then you are misinformed. If you are making the assumption that Republican means Christian and Democrat means atheist, then you are wrong. And we laugh at that, but trust me, we know that's true, right, of some people's thinking. And here's the deal. While granted, there may be some, dis- some significant distinctions as it pertains to 2020 party lines that you could easily go, hey, this seems to be leaning more this way versus this way. Might I remind you, and this has never changed and it never will, that God is not a Republican or a Democrat. What we need to understand is there are major flaws in our political ideology. And to assume that one or the other is consistent with the biblical understanding is foolish. In the book, Compassion and Conviction, we read, at certain times and on certain issues, Christian principles compel us to defy both political conservatism and political progressivism. When it comes to political ideology, to be conservative or progressive at all times and on every issue is not only to be intellectually lazy and easily manipulated, but it's also unfaithful. Do you hear that? To make the assumption that to go, oh, I go straight ticket here or straight ticket here because this is what most aligns with biblical ideology is lazy and unfaithful. Theological conservatism, they go on to write, and ideological conservatism are not always the same. Furthermore, the far-left conception of social justice isn't always consistent with the biblical understanding of justice. Here's the thing. The Bible is clear on certain issues. And while political platforms include a host of different topics, there are some that are very clear in Scripture and then some that are not. Recently, on a Sunday morning, I alluded to an article written by Tim Keller entitled, How to Win the West Again. 
In it, Keller deals with some of our current political polarization, and as he delves into that, he highlights what was the social vision of the early church, distinctives that ought to still mark the church today and really to be sticking points in our political views. The first of which was the early church had a demonstration for and an appreciation of ethnic diversity. As we see within the early church, it was itself multi-ethnic. Barriers formerly created by race and by social class were now torn down. Each individual a new creation in Christ. You can see this in the early church in Acts chapter 13 verses 1 through 3 or in a passage that I love very much in Ephesians in chapter 2. In Ephesians chapter 2 in verses 11 through 22, we read Therefore, remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hand, that at the time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. The early church was demonstrating what diversity was all about. Secondly, the early church had an incredible commitment to caring for the poor and for the marginalized. As you look at the account of the Samaritan parable in in Luke chapter 10 and verses 25 through 37, or elsewhere in Galatians in chapter 6 verse 10, you find a people who cared not just for themselves, but for all people, and they cared for them sacrificially. In Galatians In that passage in chapter 6, verse 10, we see very simply, Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to some. No, it was all. Let us do good to all. He goes on to write, especially to those who are of the household of faith, which gives us their insight into the fact that he was saying, not just people within the church, but to all people. And so here again, you find a people who cared for others sacrificially, not just of their own tribe, but all people. And this, by the way, also included the immigrant. It does not necessarily deny the benefit of immigration policy, but the care for those who are made in the image of God? Absolutely. And this helped then the early church to develop a commitment to justice as the church stood for the oppressed. Thirdly, we saw within the early church an unwavering stand against abortion and infanticide. Psalm 139 and verses 13 through 16 give us insight into how God views life even before it's formed in the womb. As Scripture says, He knew your unformed substance. And we want to talk about and argue about when life begins. Or in James, in chapter 1, verse 27, as he makes very plain what pure and undefiled religion is. Caring for widows and orphans in their distress, which, by the way, is part of the pro-life continuum. What's the pro-life continuum? From the moment God thought you into existence till you breathe your last breath, from womb to the tomb, We need to engage in every stage of life. Or also, you know, we refer to the 60s as the sexual revolution in our country. 
But really, it was the early church that led a sexual revolution that upheld marriage as between one man and one woman, that advocated and, and taught explicitly monogamy, one, one partner in marriage, that taught the idea of consent, that gave us a healthy understanding of marriage relationships and how to care one for the other that dealt with the idea of abuse in the relationship and dealt with other sexual perversions. And, and also, by the way, in this sexual revolutionary ethic that was put forth by the church, also empowered women. Isn't it strange today how the enemy has twisted what so many people believe Christianity to be? Look at 1 Corinthians in chapter 6, verses 12, all the way through chapter 7, verse 5, and you'll have an understanding of much of what the Bible teaches on this. But mind you though, that throughout history, when done well, this has not resulted in the demonization of those involved in various sexual acts and even sexual perversion. Rather, for example, individuals with same-sex attraction who are made in the image of God, but who need support and to be listened to and loved. This is what the Bible teaches us. And all of this, by the way, was done with a commitment to humility and to forgiveness and love. To love your enemies. To pray for those who curse you and spitefully use you. To turn the other cheek. It was done, you could say, with civility. And yes, we absolutely need more civility today. Listen, I will beg of you, those here, those watching online, and anyone who would listen later on, please do not defend the lack of civility today as just another necessary political tactic. We must be better than that. Civility, handling people with care, communicating with care, is a recognition of human dignity. The authors of Compassion and Conviction, three authors, Gibney, Ware, and Butler, they write, all incivility is at its root preceded by dehumanization. If you listen to the rhetoric today and the foul speech on both sides, and I'm not just talking about the president and the vying candidate, but on both sides of our political spectrum, what you hear is dehumanization. And we cannot defend that. We are the church. We're the church. We read also in 1 Peter in chapter 3, 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 9 through 12 not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing, knowing that you were called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. For he who would love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Consider throughout our history, even not that long ago, Martin Luther King Jr.'s example of civility. For one who we could argue had every right to become uncivil, continually and over and over again, requested, exhorted, commanded, did whatever he had to do to ensure that people who were engaging in the peaceful protest process were civil, were above reproach. Keller writes this, civility involves humility, patience, tolerance, and a lack of self-righteousness. 
Civility does not mean a condoning or an accepting of immoral views, but rather recognizing this is still a person. But sadly, that has been lost, even more so as of late, behind our masks, it seems, and especially our social media accounts. And in too many cases, we find people so comfortable to dehumanize another through our speech. I mean, think of leaders in the past who with an incredible ability to communicate could command the presence of a room, could challenge the fiercest opponent and shut them down without ever hurling an insult, but just through their character and the power of their presence. And how much more those who are indwelt with and empowered by the Holy Spirit of the living God. So the question really continues to then become, what, what really matters then? As we consider each of those things that were characteristic of the early church, that by the way should absolutely cause us to go, okay, that sounds familiar. We're dealing with some of those things still today, but how do we, how do we deal with that? Well, well, biblically speaking, there are some things that we just have to say, this matters. This has to be dealt with. This has to be considered. Ethnic reconciliation, racial justice matters. This is in Scripture And if you want to deny racism in this country, then you are not really considering the issue. You are ignoring it. As a Christian, we must be willing to esteem others and to consider the issues. To be willing to say, this has been my experience. What's been yours? Teach me. Educate me. And rest assured, it's not what CNN or Fox News is telling us. But what we could really begin to find out is when when we engage with those we're called to love, which is our neighbors. To sit down and be willing to have that conversation. To talk to your neighbor. Or better yet, to be willing to go even two neighborhoods over to maybe the one that you have historically not been willing to go to. Abortion matters. This too is in Scripture. Anyone who tries to minimize the issue of abortion, you're participating then in the dehumanization of life made in the image of God. And by the way, because oftentimes these two seem to be separated because of the success of much of our political polarization, the issue of abortion is really one of the greatest forms of racism that our country has ever known. Traditional marriage and issues of gender identity. These things matter. It's in Scripture. God created them. Male and female, He created them. He designed and ordained marriage, yet our government institution today seems to think that they have control over it. These things are in Scripture. This does not mean that we spew hatred and disgust. It means we lovingly stand for truth. To care for the poor, the marginalized, and the oppressed, this matters. This is in Scripture. If you take a, well, you know what, just just work harder, pull yourself up by your own bootstraps approach, then what you're really conveying there is you don't really understand the poverty culture that exists in our country today. And listen, this also doesn't mean that you need to become a socialist to deal with it. And this is what so often happens, right? Is that, well, if we admit one thing, then it compromises this other thing. No, it doesn't. Again, those are the lies that we've been told. The church throughout history has been successful at dealing with these things. Now here's the problem though. While these issues matter biblically, we are not expressly told how to deal with them. Furthermore, there are then other issues 
Say, for example, like religious liberty, which, by the way, is not expressly stated in Scripture. We hold it dear, right? It's a freedom that we know, hey, we want this. You could gather that it's implied in Scripture in order for you to live these things out, but it doesn't necessarily say that here's what needs to happen in government. Or maybe one that's a little less sort of ambiguous. We're not told about health care. We're not told about gun control. We're not told about other economic policies. And so we begin to deal with all these other things, right, in a way where we go, well, what exactly are we supposed to do with this? And here's the thing. The fact is, Christian, you don't, you don't get to, in good conscience then, ignore the clear biblical issues, but in the absence of specific direction, You must take these things to Scripture to consider them within the context of the candidates, to evaluate them prayerfully, and then to begin to move forward the best way that you can. Stated differently, we don't get just just to say, well, I'm passionate about this one, and so I'm going to disregard these, if they're clearly stated in Scripture especially. We've got to wrestle with all of these things and work to try and figure out how do we move forward and address these things that God clearly compels us to address. Here's the other thing that we need to understand as we consider these issues, that we all hopefully agree are important issues, we're not all going to arrive at the same political conclusions. And we need to be okay with that. Consider this example. Two Christians, both can articulate when they came to Christ, both can tell you of how they love the Lord and are active in their church and stand for truth and uphold the teaching of the Word of God. Both will recognize that abortion is wrong. They both profess to be pro-life and and want to stand for life. One individual says, well, in in light of that, this is the way that you have to vote because this is the most pro-life president. And it's through this channel that we will have pro-life laws. The other individual who holds to all of those same beliefs has prayerfully taken these things to Scripture and said, well, I disagree. I think that this candidate is the one who ultimately will make the biggest difference in these areas, which will have the greatest impact on this area. Now you might, and a lot of people want to go right off the bat, they go, well, well, hey, wait a second. How is that possible? How could you possibly say if you're pro-life that you would feel comfortable voting for a candidate who's pro-choice? Well, because, and this is an exercise that I would say, and David Platt gives kind of an idea of this. He's got a little chart in his book. But Each Christian, if they're doing their job, if they're considering their civic responsibility, is going to take every biblical issue to the Lord. And what we should really consider is what are the issues at stake here and what's the biblical clarity on those issues? Meaning, what does Scripture have to say about this? And that makes it a really big issue that we really need to consider. But the other thing that we then need to consider is how is my government and the leadership with my government going to handle each of those things? What are the practical implications of that? And while one person may say, here, I'm pro-life, and so this person is going to stand the best chance to overturn Roe v. Wade. The other person may say, I'm pro-life, but I'm also pro all of these other things. And oh, by the way, Roe v. Wade doesn't doesn't stand a chance of being overturned. I'm not making that comment. I'm not saying that's the case, but they believe that way, right? And this person, having worked, let's say, for example, uh, with a lot of unplanned pregnancies, maybe they've spent a lot of time in a pregnancy center, has said, I know that in all of the people that I've spent time with this year, here's the reasons why they were having an abortion. It was financial related. It was housing related. It was this, it was this, it was this. It had nothing to do with their value on life. It had everything to do with their circumstances and they were entirely overwhelmed. 
So I believe that in order to best glorify God, in order to best love my neighbor, I need this policy in place, and we'll begin to see abortions decrease. What are you going to do? At the end of that, what you're left with is, I disagree with your view on the politics here. But you're both still believers, brothers and sisters in Christ, who are doing your best to surrender these biblical principles to the Lord and to say, Lord, how would you have me best address this? And sadly, what's happening today within the church is instead of us then rallying around, we got to address this issue. We divide over the politics. So what do we do with this? We pursue unity around Christ, not politics. Once again, I would not suggest to you that this election is not important or that it does not have consequences. Listen, and I hope that all of this is making sense tonight. I want a great future for my children. Should the Lord tarry in his return? If, the, if we're here another 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, another century, man, I want, a, I want a great future for my children. Lord willing for my grandchildren. I'll just be out front with you. I don't want a socialist country. And that's not a political statement. Just look at history. Look around the world. Look at what socialism and Marxism has done to nations around the world. I don't want that here. I don't want religious persecution. Although I know scripture is clear on what persecution accomplishes within the church. And so maybe that's exactly what we need. I can't say that I wake up wanting it. But here, I, I don't want those things, and I hope that we could all agree with that. But what I refuse, what I refuse to suggest, explicitly or implicitly, is that my hope or my peace is in this country or in its leadership or in any leader, man or woman, other than Jesus Christ. That is what I will not budge on. Next week, Tuesday night or Wednesday morning, or if there's a hanging chat in Florida, several months later, there will be a president. Same one or a new one. And when that happens, no matter what the outcome is, I hope that we as a church would share the sentiments of the Apostle Paul as he addresses the elders in Ephesus, In Acts chapter 20, beginning in verse 24, Paul says, But none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself, so that I may finish my race with joy. In the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God, and indeed, now I know that you all, among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God, will see my face no more. Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men. For I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. Therefore take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. That is what we are to be focused on. That as we considered this past Sunday in 1 Peter in chapter 1, that our trust would rest fully on Jesus. And furthermore, that we would begin to realize that our civic responsibility as governing citizens does not rest solely on our vote. Yes, we are to vote, but that's just one piece of it. That as Abraham Lincoln in his famous Gettysburg Address stated, that these dead, he was honoring those who had died in the war, that these dead shall not have died in vain, that this nation under God shall have a new birth of freedom, and that government of the people, by the people, for the people, shall not perish from the earth. Folks, we are the people. 
Jesus commanded us to preach the gospel. It is the gospel that changes lives, that transforms hearts and minds. We go with the power of the Holy Spirit. A church that Jesus said He alone would build, that the gates of hell would not prevail against it. And here, 2,000 years later, we're still going strong. And I don't mean to mock, but that leads me to believe that this is not the most important election of all time. That the fate of the world is hanging in the balance. I've not said it's not important. I've not said it doesn't have consequences. But I serve a God who is a whole lot bigger. Who is alive and well. Friends, living in the USA, being a, being a, a part of, it, for everything that's going on in this country this year, listen, if you traveled anywhere outside of this country, you know it's a pretty darn good place. It is. Being part of a democratic republic, it's a blessing. But it's not my Savior. Jesus is. And if you want our country to be transformed, it can be by a move of His Holy Spirit through His people. So your vote alone, yes, it will accomplish something. And it should be considered, prayerfully considered. But while it may accomplish something, it doesn't accomplish everything. The fact is, the culture will go where we let it go. As I've often said about abortion specifically, and, and even to go back to the analogy, you can't legislate that. You can't. And you want to know what happens if they overturn Roe v. Wade? Which, by all means, go for it. Hey, praise the Lord. I'm not saying don't do it. Go for it. It'd be a wonderful way for us as a country to recognize this was bad. Not only because of abortion, but just anybody who knows the law knows that the law itself is just bad law. Doesn't make any sense. But you know what happens if they overturn it? It goes back to the states. And so do you know what New York continues to do and California continues to do? They have abortions. Which, by the way, and we don't have time to deal with this tonight because I need to wrap this up, but that's what, really, if we want to talk about civic engagement, it's at the local level. Look what's happening in California. Is it happening here? No, same federal government, but at the state level and at the community level, there's incredible work that can be done. I would love to see us more engaged at the local level. I'd love to see some of you run for office at the local level. Please do, pray about it. Please pray about it. Listen, there's somebody who, who, who this year I'm voting for who, quite frankly, we don't agree on a whole lot of things. But they're a believer. I've had the chance to get to know them. And they're running for a particular local office that I'm, that I'm you know what, I'm convinced they're going to do a good job at that. And this, has, this is maybe the means to open some doors locally to some different things. And they've got my vote. So again, your vote alone may accomplish something, but not everything. And, and we are responsible as governing citizens for where the culture goes. The apostles demonstrated this time and time and time and time again as they went and they preached the gospel and they saw communities just flipped upside down. In Ephesus, where there was a great move of the Spirit, Paul preached the gospel and lives were changed, and businesses and the bars of the day, if you will, were shut down because people got saved, not because they legislated it. So what is your civic responsibility? It is not just to vote for racial justice or the candidate who, who promises something, but rather to be a part of it, to get engaged. What are the ways to get engaged? There's a ton of different ways. Everything from peaceful protest and advocacy at a local level to engaging in some of the, the prayer gatherings, and which involves, by the way, where I met a particular individual that I'm now going to vote for and who's going to have some influence in our area that I believe is going to speak directly to issues of racial justice. And so now being involved with them. Or how about Ezekiel Ministries and the opportunity to be involved with youth, predominantly youth of color in our community, that are saying, hey, 
I don't have a father in the home and I need somebody to come along and mentor me. You think that's a way that we could do that? It's not to vote for different economic policies necessarily and for better care for the poor and marginalized, but to die to yourself and to give sacrificially to care for someone, right? The whole reason that the government is failing at this process is because the church had long done it and should be doing it. And by the way, we're doing a lot of that here, so I'm not yelling at you. But I am trying to exhort you to say, let's do more. Let's continue to, to, to go deep and to say, Lord, what would you have me do? It's not to vote necessarily for pro-life laws. And I know to some people that sounds absolutely crazy. But listen, I, I, I worked for over three years in that environment. I was a part of, of everything that was happening in our community when it came to the pro-life effort. And I can tell you I saw nothing accomplished at a legislative level. Nothing. Now some would say, no, 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 we, we, we passed this or we passed that. You know what? That's what you think. The person who says, oh, but we passed this, we took care of this. They never stepped foot in a pregnancy center and met with a person who was facing an unplanned pregnancy and said, let me help you through this. They didn't see the numbers go up even after those laws were passed because more unplanned pregnancies were happening and more abortions were happening. No, they just passed a law and thought, we did it. Instead of going, hey, you're facing an unplanned pregnancy, let me help you. You can stay at our house. We will help you with this. We will help you with that. Hey, let's have an Embrace Grace ministry. Those of you in this church that are involved in that and a wonderful ministry there to say, we're gonna bring these young mothers together and we're gonna disciple them. We're gonna walk alongside them. Hey, we're gonna go outside of Planned Parenthood and we're not gonna hold up signs of, of dead babies and scream and yell at people. We're gonna go outside of Planned Parenthood and we're gonna pray and we're gonna go and, and to the best of our ability approach these men and women and say, hey, can I help you? Can I serve you? What is it that's bringing you in here today? I bet we have an alternative for you. But there's a resource available to you. It's not to vote against a progressive marriage law, though I'm not suggesting you don't, but rather to love someone from the LGBT community into the light of the truth of the gospel. So often we find ourselves saying, well, yeah, I stood for traditional marriage because I voted. Do you know anybody who professes to be LGBTQ? Have you had the opportunity to love on them, to care for them, and to pray for them? What our culture needs right now is not just orthodoxy, but orthopraxy. As James writes in chapter 2, verse 18, show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. In other words, James says, stop talking about it and do it. So once again, let's pursue unity around Christ and around the issues Consider Jesus' prayer, and I'll begin to close here. Consider Jesus' prayer in John 17. In John 17, in verses 20 through 23, the entire chapter is his prayer, but specifically in 22 through 23, he says, I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me, and the glory which you gave me I have given them, that they may be one just as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. Jesus wants for his church to be unified. In Ephesians, in chapter 4, in Ephesians chapter 4 and verses 1 through 6, Paul writes, I therefore the prisoner of the Lord beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with, you, with which you were called with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, 
Just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. We are called to be unified. The fact of the matter is, at the end of the day, we're not all going to be unified on exactly what political solution or political candidate is best going to get the job done. That's up to each of you as believers to take these issues, and that's what you need to commit to doing. We should all be able to count on one another to say, I'm not just going to walk in there and go, boop, 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 because this is the way that I've always done it, or this is what's been told me is just how you do it, but rather to say, no, I am. I'm going to take these issues, and I'm going to say, which ones, which ones are truly clear in Scripture? And, and, and then what are the practical implications of this? What is this candidate going to do as it relates to all of these things? And to pray through that and to labor through that. I would say even to fast and pray through that. Whatever you need to do, don't take that lightly. And to say, Lord, give me wisdom for this. And then when we ask for wisdom, we ask so in faith, not wavering, trusting that, okay, Lord, when you tell me what I'm to do, I'm going to do it. I'll be obedient to it. And then you do that in faith and you cast your vote. But that's just one part of that process, once again, to where you say, okay now, Lord, all of these things that you've made clear to me are issues and that burden your heart, Lord. Help me to engage in this process even more. To put this into practice. To put, as it were, my money where my mouth is. Christian, get out and vote. At the end of it all, I would say, yes, get out and vote. Take the issues, take the issues at hand to the Lord. Pray, evaluate. Consider them through a biblical framework and determine how you'll proceed, but then trust the Lord with it. Again, as I said in the beginning, I don't have all the answers. I'm pretending to have it all figured out. But I can tell you this much. The Lord has been working on my heart a whole lot over the last, really since the beginning of this year primarily, giving me insight and challenging things. I'm not pretending to be some woke pastor, but I will tell you this. There are some who've known me for a long time that are, that are on the more conservative side that go, man, you're getting liberal. And there are some that I would know on the liberal side that would say, man, you're conservative. And that tells me I'm starting to do something right. I'll leave you with a closing comment from David Platt. Do not be faithless on that day when you cast your ballot. Do not trust yourself in that day. Do not trust in a candidate or a party in that day. Do not trust in anyone or anything but Jesus on that day. Make the stewardship of your vote the overflow of radical trust in Jesus. His word to you, his spirit in you, his rule over you, and his reign, not only in our nation, but over all the nations. When you hold your ballot in your hand, pause and thank Jesus for his loving leadership of your life and his sovereign lordship over this election. Then, as you check that box, offer this simple and sincere prayer. Lord, may your kingdom come. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word to us. For how, Lord, you care for us and meet us right where we are. And, Lord, you challenge us. And, Lord, once again, on a topic that is uh, often considered quite sensitive, Lord, as I prayed in the very beginning, I pray once again, Lord, that we could have unity around you, Lord, and the issues that you call us to address. And that we'd not be, Lord, so caught up in the political process as much, Lord, as being the church, the body of Christ that goes and has impact on these issues in our community. While we have a responsibility to vote, yes, Lord, and we're blessed to be able to do so, Lord, we have greater responsibility to engage in our community for the good of all with the truth of the gospel, Lord, and so help us to be a church, a body of believers that does that with unity, Lord, with a common love and and passion for you, Lord Jesus. So, Father, do that work in our hearts, and we would pray, Lord, your kingdom come. As uh, people continue, even maybe have already, Lord, and throughout this week and up until next week, Lord, go to that voting booth, Lord. We do pray your will be done 
and that, Lord, we would trust you and follow you, Lord, and not be moved by any circumstances that may come. Father, we love you and praise you and we give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. Here at CCNE, there are so many events happening throughout the week, so make sure you're subscribed to the weekly e-bulletin so you can be fully informed of all that we're doing. For more info, or if there are any prayer requests you would like to share with us, be sure to visit us at ccnortheast.org.